Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. If you're like me and interested in outer space, you may be just as intrigued by the human microbiome. There are approximately 200 billion trillion stars in our universe. The human microbiome has approximately 100 trillion microbial cells. These numbers are quite abstract. These microbial cells influence human physiology, metabolism, nutrition, and immune function, while disruption to the gut microbiota have been linked with gastrointestinal conditions such as IBD, IBS, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, depression, anxiety, hair loss, and obesity. Gut stool testing has been gaining traction in order to help people reach their health goals by working on their gut health. Stool testing has the ability to take a look inside your gut microbiome and identify pathogens, parasites, keystone species, nutrients, genetic material, and more. I've used this form of testing for my kids and clients and have seen them all utilize this valuable data to continue to prevent disease and turn around health conditions by making lifestyle changes, using supplements, and those include probiotics. So many people are struggling with their gut health due to diet, lifestyle, genetics, and chronic disease. Women transitioning through menopause will experience changes going on in the gut microbiome as well. I've recorded a different podcast on midlife women and their gut health with Microbiome Labs co-founder Karan Krishnan, so be sure to check out that episode on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and my YouTube channel, including my website at jillfooswellness.com. Today, I'm speaking with Kara Seedman. Kara is a registered dietitian, clinical liaison for Microbiome Labs, and certified diabetes educator with more than 13 years of clinical experience. Most recently, Kara spent the last eight years working in a large gastroenterology practice, building a program that integrates functional medicine and nutrition into their patient care model. With a strong focus on the microbiome, health, and well-being, she continues to grow her knowledge in this evolving field to provide the tools for patients and offer up-to-date and current research surrounding all things microbiome-related. A medical disclaimer before we dive in with Kara, by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or to make any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your minds, and let's dive in to stool testing and gut health. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited too, because boy, is there a lot of confusion about gut health and stool testing and all the things in between. Absolutely. This is such a new science. What we've learned over the last 10 years, it's really just, we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. And I think we're in a really exciting time now in microbiome research. Yeah. So what even, what's been intriguing you so much that you've (laughs) dedicated a lot of your career to restoring gut health? 
it's such a good question. I, I it's funny because I I think back to my interest really started when I was in school and I was into fermentation and and I just always had this interest in bugs so much that I you know married a brewer. But <laughs> but I think for gut health specifically, you can do all the right things, right? You can have a great diet, you can exercise, you can do all the things that we know are important for our overall health, but you can essentially fall to your gut's demise, right? Our gut doesn't discriminate. And so I think that for me is so key because it can, it can be challenging, right? You have people who are doing so much and still have symptoms, um, but ultimately I found it to be the most challenging group of patients and challenging group of people I've worked with, but also the most rewarding. I think too, when we think about gut, for me, it separates what is different with the microbiome. So I think of gut health as a little bit different than microbiome health. And, and microbiome health, understanding the role of our microbes, understanding the fact that our microbiome itself in this community of microbiota really dictates so much of our overall health. And, and that is where the research, and that is so much of what we're learning now. And, and there's a lot of power and there's a lot that we can do. And, and so I find that to be challenging yet rewarding. So I, I love that you opened up with that because um, all the terms that yeah. encompass gut health are really confusing to a lot of people out there. And I think it's really important that they understand everything because don't just take the probiotic or a prebiotic, right? You really understand what is going on and why you're doing this, why you're making this decision. So what is the difference between microbiome and microbiota? Because some people use them interchange. They are. And I think it is important to understand the difference. And I think we're using a lot of these terms without having a lot of meaning behind it. So microbiome, all that really means is the collection or the community um, of microbes, right? So that specific ecosystem, right? All of it together, there are associated genes, right? That live on or inside the human, bi the human body, whereas your microbiota are the range of microorganisms. So everything from bacteria, archaea, you are, you know, eukaryotes, viruses, that are present in a defined environment or a defined neighborhood. So this varies according to the surrounding environment. So you have your gut microbiota, you have your skin microbiota, your gut microbiome is the collection. So uh, again, they are used interchangeably, but they do have different meanings. Yes, that is really confusing, but thank you for, <laughs> for that breakdown. I don't think anyone will correct you. So. Right, exactly. Right, right. What about dysbiosis? What is the meaning of dysbiosis? So dysbiosis is simply the imbalance in our microbial ecosystem. So a change in what is deemed, you know, normal or healthy, a change in that balance. And that's essentially just what dysbiosis is. So if someone is having bloating, gas, constipation, loose stools, does that mean that there is some level of gut dysbiosis going on? Most likely. So dysbiosis essentially for me is what starts to change the GI environment. So if we have a change in the microbial ecosystem, then that's going to potentially start to drive changes in our intestinal barrier, which can then turn into changing and affecting our immune system. So as soon as we have that change in the, in the microbial balance, it's sort of a cascading effect that can happen from there. And ultimately we'll see signs of that usually coming about in GI symptoms. Yeah. Let's um, define what leaky gut is because yep. you just mentioned that. So Absolutely. a lot of people are really confused about this term, um, gut impermeability, leaky gut, and yep. I also would like to ask you, does everybody have some level of leaky gut? 
you know, I was just talking about that with someone. So essentially leaky gut or in other terms, increased intestinal permeability. So these I like to use interchangeably. I think, you know, the term leaky gut sometimes gets some negative connotation, especially talking to different, you know, groups. I come from a conventional background and allopathic, and I, know, I, I like to use that term increased intestinal permeability. And really what that means is it's describing a condition where our gut barrier, so when we think of our gut barrier, we have that strong mucosal, that thick mucosal layer. I think of that as like our security perimeter, our, our fence, and that starts to become compromised. So once there's a breakdown in that, in that mucosal barrier, then essentially what's happening in your lumen or your microbiome, that's where your microbiome resides, that's the innermost part of our intestines, what's happening in the lumen, we're not protecting from what's happening in the immune system. So that mucosal barrier is really that key place that prevents these larger molecules from entering into systemic circulation, which is where we essentially can drive inflammation and immune activation. And the epithelial cell that's lining the lumen is just one cell thick. And this is where the little tears can occur, correct? So essentially, yeah, you have, so I think of it as almost like a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, give us the anatomy of this. <laughs> so you have your lumen. And so your lumen, when we, so just to kind of backtrack a little bit, when we eat food, we swallow food, it goes down into our esophagus, right? Which is a tube right. in, into our stomach. And then food enters into the intestines, which is another tube. And that innermost portion, that innermost part of your intestines is where we have the lumen. So the lumen is that innermost portion. That's where the microbiome resides. And then beneath the lumen, we have that mucosal barrier. And the mucosal barrier is really thick. It's kind of, it's two layers thick in the large intestines. It's a little bit thinner in the small intestines, but it's really thick. It's sterile, right? It's like the only mm -hmm. sterile part of our right. body. Um, and it's to prevent what's happening in the microbiome from getting into the epithelium, which is where your, your immune system resides. So yeah, the epithelium, the layer of there, it's really one cell layer thick. And within the epithelium, we have those tight junctions. I think of tight junctions as almost like the individual fence posts. Mm -hmm, and you know how mm -hmm. with a, I think of my fence, like you, there's concrete. So as that concrete, if that starts to loosen up, those individual fence posts can be knocked down. Well, now your fence isn't as strong. And essentially we can have animals, we can have people, we can have all these things mm -hmm. coming through, which is what we're trying to keep a barrier from. So that's how I think of it. And that mucosal layer is the inside of that sandwich, which is so important, right? No one just eats the two slices of bread. We always want what's inside the sandwich. So, essentially, so essentially everything that's on inside the lumen, inside of that epithelial cell wall is inside the microbiome and anything that escapes and gets out is now into our body because our entire yep. microbiome is the only part of our body that is exposed to the outside world. Exactly. So the lumen is that innermost portion. And essentially yep. as things leak through, as intestinal permeability takes place, then we essentially enter systemic circulation. And once things enter circulation, it could be driven to all parts of the body, which is why if we think of the microbiome, people call it the, you know, the, a virtual organ in and of itself, or we think of uh, the second brain almost, right? <laughs> that, that, that it really dictates, and Hippocrates said this, right? All diseases begin in the gut because 70% of our immune system resides in the GI, in, in the microbiome within the GI tract. And so it's really dictating and impacting so much of our overall health. And we're seeing that now we see that we understand that so much more with all this microbiome research. Right. So you and I met, um, a little bit ago when we were reviewing my son's biome, uh, FX, yeah. biome FX stool test results <laughs> together. 
And there was something that you said in the beginning that really stood out to me. And you said, we want the microbiome to be a rainforest, right? Have a lot of diversity and, you know, there's some good things in, there's good things. And then there's some bad things in there, right? And everyone's living in harmony together, right? And then you said, my son's microbiome was a desert. And we linked it back to antibiotic use. But it really made me think about the analogy of what is the optimal healthy gut? What does that look like? So that's a great question. And I love that because it's a great visual, right? Yeah. And, and it's also important to understand that we, we do live in symbiosis, right? It's not that everything within the microbiome is essentially good. It's that they're living in harmony. And I think that draws a lot of, you know, conversation because we think that, oh, we shouldn't have any bad bugs. But when we think about what is considered a healthy microbiome, I mean, it's actually, if you go into the research, there's really not a consensus because we're learning that, but there's key characteristics that we know help to create a healthy environment. And that's having really good microbial diversity. So that means that, what does that mean, right? Diversity is not just pure number of species. So the abundance of species, it's also the richness of our species. And there was a really great landmark study that came out not that long ago that looked at microbial diversity in uh, an indigenous tribe, Burkina Faso, and, and, they, and they showed that this tribe had, you know, there was four or 500 species within the microbiome. And then we compared it to the Western, the, the typical Western microbiome, and, and there was maybe a hundred, you know, much, much less species. And it's showing this loss of diversity. And there's, and, and we can talk about, you know, why that happens. But that loss of diversity is really where we start to see those initial changes. Because once there's a loss of diversity, diversity in your commensal, your health, your health promoting species. So, you know, your keystone species, which are key important species that drive and dictate a lot of the health of the microbiome, we start to then see a degraded mucosal barrier. So we start to see a breakdown in that gut barrier that protects the epithelium, right? That protects the immune system. And so we start to see weakened or compromised type junctions. And essentially that's where we end up seeing changes in, you know, immune activation and inflammation. Let's talk about those keystone species. What, what are they? How many are there? And do you often see so many of these present or missing in most of the stool test results? So keystone species have been this term that's been, you know, given to these very specific bacteria and strains and, or species of bacteria that really confer a lot of health benefits. They actually only make up, you know, one to 3%. I've seen some numbers up to 5%, but they make up, they take up a very, very small amount of real estate, but they have a disproportionate benefit on the health of the microbiome. Mm-hmm. And so these, these keystone species are, you know, what produce a lot of these important and then this is a term I think that gets confused. A lot of these important postbiotics, right? Like mm-hmm. short chain fatty acids or that have uh, the ability to produce certain enzymes and vitamins. So all of these, these functions of our microbiota that we know impact the health of the human host. So that's the keystone species. Now, are we missing a lot of them? I think people do because we're exposed to a lot of things that impact the microbiome as a whole. Now, I work in the field of people who don't feel well and people that have conditions going on. And so I think I get a little bit of a microscopic mm-hmm. view because I'm not necessarily looking at people who are just like, I feel amazing and I feel mm-hmm. wonderful. So yeah. I, do, I do see a lot of these species missing. And I think that that lends itself to, to part of those changes in the microbiome that are driving changes in the functions of our microbes. 
And what are some of the things that cause our keystone species to either minimize in number or completely disappear or just gut gut dysbiosis in general? So there's a, there's a lot of factors that play a role in gut dysbiosis, gut dysbiosis. We like to call this the exposome, right? So the things that are really impacting the microbiome, and it comes from obviously diet being a major contributor. So everything from, yeah. you know, standard American diet, right? High processed foods, lots of artificial sweeteners, you know, lots of saturated fat. We're really, and, and this is something we can see in a lot of the microbial patterns, but we've lost a lot of the diversity in our diet, especially when it comes to these dietary fibers and, and the preferred food for our microbiota and, and the preferred source of growth of these important commensal species. Of course, medications, right? Everything from antibiotics. There's no one that's going to argue that, you know, we are a, a society, we are, you know, a community that prescribes a lot of antibiotics um, from even starting from, you know, in utero and, and early ch- and in childhood and infancy. So yeah. we, we definitely have a lot of antibiotic use and we know that that changes the microbiome. Um, other types of medications, right? So, you know, proton pump inhibitors and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, NSAIDs, these are all things that can, can have an effect on the microbiome. Alcohol use, there's lots of research showing that drinking alcohol, unfortunately, can, can drive some of those, dis- drive some of those imbalances, obviously stress, environmental toxins. So everything from glyphosate and and chlorine and some of the natural chemicals even that we're exposed to, but in excess. Um, even things like intense exercise. Now I live over here in Colorado. We've got lots of ultra marathoners and lots of extreme athletes and, and they have some of the worst GI issues that I've ever yeah. seen. And, um, and then travel, right? We travel because we want to reduce stress. We travel because we want to experience, but traveling really takes us out of our, our typical environment and actually can, can be considered a microbiome disruptor. Yeah. What's going on when people travel to another place and all of a sudden they can't poop, they're constipated. <laughs> I don't get it. No, I, I know. I think it's just the change in our, our day-to-day activity, right? So whether it's because we eat differently, I think, especially when we go on planes and I am so guilty of this. And part of it is sometimes I have my daughter with me and she doesn't let me do this, but I don't drink any water. Hmm. I mean, it's amazing. I'm someone who focuses so much on my fluid intake every day, all day. And then I'll, I'll travel even just back East to see my family. And, and it's like, I, I didn't drink one glass of water the whole day. So I think it's just that change in sort of our, our, our everyday pattern, but we also see the opposite. We have people who suffer from functional GI conditions or GI symptoms like irritable bowel syndrome, and they go somewhere and they can magically eat everything they want. And they can, they can, you know, they avoid so many foods where they live, but they can eat everything. And I think that just goes to show the gut brain access, right? The effect that stress and, yeah. and the relationship that, that, that bi-directional communication that our, our, our gut microbiome and our gut has throughout the body. So um, I think there's a lot of factors that play into that, but that is a, something I hear all the time. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Um, I just had Karan on my website. I, I mean, on my podcast yeah. um, last week and he's the, for people who don't know, um, Karan Krishnan is the co-founder of Microbiome Labs. He's a microbiologist. And we were talking about met the the menopausal transition and how that is now shown in science where women are seeing changes in their gut microbiome. Absolutely. And and we even see it, you know, very clearly with changes in their symptoms, right? We can, especially things like constipation, especially increases in, you know, I had so many of my patients, I work, you know, in GI. And so so many of my patients with SIBO and weight changes. And so it, it, we have to start to think about the gut playing a huge role in that process. We don't. And that's, 
been the previous thought, but now in a lot of these conditions, we are starting to understand the role that the gut is playing. And so you mentioned a few of the really important jobs that our gut, that the good gut bugs play in our microbiome. One is extracting nutrients from food, synthesizing vitamins. I don't think people really understand the role of these bugs. So can you just break that down for us? Absolutely. And I kind of mentioned this earlier that, yeah. you know, we think of, we, we like to consider the microbiota as sort of the second genome. And they're actually responsible for more than 98% of the genetic activity in our body, which is crazy. So our microbiota have metabolic functions, they have structural functions as well as protective functions. So you mentioned they break down nutrients, right? So it's important to have that healthy balance of bacteria. So we're able to digest things like our dietary fibers. And that's where we get production of, of really, you know, really important uh, metabolic byproducts known as short chain fatty acids. Yeah. It helps to break down lipids, even, you know, proteins. Um, we also know that our microbes can synthesize specific vitamins like our B vitamins, everything from, you know, B12. In fact, our microbiota can contribute up to 31% of our recommended intake of B12. Um, and one of my most favorite vitamins to talk about, one that is in the research a lot, has far-reaching effects in the body is vitamin K2, mm -hmm. which is solely produced by um, endogenous or bacterial fermentation. And so if we have these changes in our microbiotic, we have this dysbiosis, we're going to essentially affect and impact that natural synthesis and of those vitamins and those key So it really calls to then, if we have that and we can assess that, we have to look at diet. We have to look at supplements because if we're not getting it from our, from our microbiome, then we have to get it elsewhere. Um, but we also have our microbiota, again, produce short chain fatty acids. Um, and these have just far reaching effects in the body from, you know, metabolic to impacting our brain and, you know, of course our gut health, our microbiota produce really specific neurotransmitters like serotonin and GABA, um, our guts responsible for 95% of serotonin, uh, production enzymes, you know, that help to, uh, synthesize, you know, so many different, uh, compounds and, and ferment a variety of compounds. Uh, that escape digestion, right? That we don't necessarily, that don't necessarily get broken down in digestion. And so things like, uh, we could talk about the astrobolone, right? That these are bacteria that have um, uh, uh, what's known as beta-glucuronidase, right? The enzyme that's needed to help to uh, uh, balance out our estrogen levels. And so our, our microbiota, again, they have so many different functions. They protect the host from, from pathogen takeover. So something known as colonization resistance, so helping to uh, protect us from having pathogens uh, take over. They help to uh, develop and regulate our immune system from our adaptive immunity to our innate immunity. So just far-reaching effects, which is why there's so much importance being put on the microbiome now and, and, and why we understand so much more about this microbiotic crosstalk. So you've mentioned um, dietary fiber and prebiotic fiber a couple times. Yes. And we know that a healthy gut requires a nice, diverse diet, but everybody's diet is very individualized as well. And there's a lot of people out there who can't eat fiber. And there's, you know, I'm sure you know what the carnivore diet is, a diet that consists mostly, of, you know, only of the animal kingdom foods. Yep. Um, very popular. And people immediately feel so good on it. So what is going on with people who can't eat the fiber? And if they don't eat fiber and they, then they can't produce the short chain fatty acids is something missing for them. 
So, you know, it's funny, I was just doing a talk the other day and we got this question and we, and we can see this, you know, with, with stool testing, we can see some of these changes in the diet and how it's changing the microbiome. But one thing I think it's important to understand is, you know, it, it really depends, I, I hear this a lot, right? So people say, okay, I feel so much better on a carnivore diet. And, and is it because they removed something else? You know, was there just an overall change, right? Where they, where did they go from a typical standard American diet? Yeah. So I always have questions when people say that, but I always say, we don't fix what's not broken. And if someone feels good, I'm never gonna change their diet. But what we do understand is our, micro, our, mic, our microbiota, right? The, the bacteria can utilize amino acids, can utilize protein to produce short chain fatty acids. So there is that, it's not, a, it's not the preferred source of fuel, right? It's not our dietary fiber, our resistant starches, things like your onions and your garlic and your artichokes, you know, this is the preferred source of fuel, but our, but our microbes can still consume our protein. But if there's any imbalance, if there's any dysbiosis, if there's any change that's driving, you know, some changes in the microbiome, then there's the chance of having some more harmful byproducts produced. And so with my patients who are on carnivore diets or, or people, you know, clients that I talk to, I usually will offer them some type of prebiotic support, even if it's something they do just a mm -hmm. few times a week to help to bring mm -hmm. in some of that diversity. You know, they might not want to consume it in the food, but we, there are lots of options from supplements to just provide that extra source so that we are giving our microbes some of the preferred, that preferred food, right? We, I say to my patients all the time, like, hey, sometimes we've got to eat food that brings us joy. And, 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 you know, sometimes if we're so stringent on our diet, that brings a whole nother level of stress, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. feel the same way for our microbes, right? They can consume all the proteins and all the fats, but sometimes we got to give them their preferred food to bring them some of that ease and to give them what they most likely and what they most enjoy, which is those dietary fibers. Yeah. I love hearing that you're not opposed to the carnivore diet because okay. I'm actually a carnivore coach. I'm not a carnivore myself um, mm -hmm. anymore, but um, it does work short-term yeah. for so many people for so many reasons. Um, so really glad to hear that. So one of the tools that doctors and practitioners like yourself and, and myself use to take a closer look inside the microbiome is stool testing. So I want to pivot our conversation to stool testing. Tell me how has stool testing impacted our healthcare system in terms of preventative disease? So I love, I love that question because I, it's, it's such a great tool that we have available, but unfortunately, you know, we live in a society that is so, you know, reactive, right? We don't necessarily have a preventative, um, you know, form. And, and so I think the difficulty around stool testing is that, you know, in, oftentimes insurance doesn't cover it and, right. and it's not available to everyone. But for me personally, you know, I love stool tests because they give us a closer look and a closer understanding of how the microbiome can be driving some of these conditions. But I think it's something hopefully, you know, if we ever can, you know, change our healthcare system, if we can ever move towards a more preventative model, I think we're going to see uh, stool testing be used a little bit more, especially some of the stool testing that's used in the integrative realm, right? We have stool testing, right? Someone walks into a, a GI clinic and they've got acute diarrhea. Well, we're going to use PCR testing to figure out if there's an acute infection. But that's the reactive society that we live in. Whereas if we can take a step back and look at someone's microbiome and the micro and the microbial patterns that are that are going on, 
this can give us clues into how to prevent some of these symptoms and how to prevent some of these conditions from taking over. And, but that's unfortunately not the model we live in. And so um, for people who can, access, who can access it, I think it's a great tool to give us those clues and those insights into what's happening. Are all stool tests created equal in terms of um, the ones that people can get direct to consumer online versus getting from their functional medicine MD or practitioner or health coach? So no, they're not all created equal. And it really comes down to the types of technology and, and what type of stool test it is. And so there are different technology, different types of stool testing technology out there. Um, you know, there's traditional stool testing most likely uses what's known as 16S, which um, looks at, can give you, you know, kind of a, a snippet of who is in the gut versus something like a whole genome sequencing test, which can give you the who, so what types of bacteria are inhabiting us, but also can give you the function. So like what we talked about before, uh, all of our microbes and microbiota perform all these necessary functions to provide the health to the host. And so with whole genome sequencing, we can actually look at the functional profiles, which tells us, well, okay, great. This might look like a really awesome neighborhood to live in, but as we dig deeper, it's not necessarily the neighbors that we want to live next to. Huh. Very interesting because, you know, a lot of people are taking it in their own hands to go to the internet and buy these direct to consumer. And it's great, right? They're a little bit more affordable, but then they're sort of left with the results and they don't know what to do beyond that. Right. And I think, I think what it's showing and what it's giving light to is the interest that people are having in taking their health into their own hands. But it's sort of the way I feel about supplements too, is when we yeah. have consumers who aren't as educated, they can go out and buy every, every single supplement under the sun. And they don't know how it interacts with their health or other medications or other supplements. And I think that we have yeah. to treat all of these tests that, you know, whether they're claiming to be diagnostic or not, but anything that's giving health advice really needs to come from a practitioner. It really needs to come from someone who's not only listening to your symptoms and listening to what you're doing in your life and your diet and what you're taking and how you're feeling in your sleep to understand how it all fits together. And, and I think unfortunately, you know, with supplements, with stool testing, those lines get really blurred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, I want to talk about the, the biome FX stool test, because that's the one, my preferred one to use, uh, for my family and for my clients. Tell me what that's really designed to look for. Give me the overall picture of that. So the overall picture, and this is a whole genome sequencing test. So mm -hmm. it's different than some of the traditional tests yep. that we use. It's, it's looking at both who is in the gut. So which types of bacteria, right? What, what's their balance? But it's also, so we're looking at, right, dysbiosis because we can see an imbalance in the microbiota. We can see an imbalance in what we know, like who is supposed to take up the most residence. Um, and so we can also look at the function. So with biome effects, we get a sense of, you know, how many of your key health promoting species are there. Uh, we look at dysbiosis risk factors. So looking at comparisons in some of the bigger groups uh, to see if there's an imbalance, right? We know from understanding and with the human micro, you know, microbiome project, we have a, a understanding of sort of which bacteria and which groups take up the biggest real estate. So if that's imbalanced, then we know that that could be driving some of the changes we're seeing. We look at also um, microbial patterns. We can look at patterns that can be uh, common in, in a lot of the common conditions we see like SIBO. We can get clues into digestive deficiency. 
We can look at which, path, which pathogens or opportunistic bacteria are there. So again, giving more insight into, is this a neighborhood that we wanna be living in? Um, we also can look at, again, of who is there, are they producing those key postbiotics? So are they producing short chain fatty acids or how, how much of these uh, protein and, 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 and protein breakdown byproducts are there? Are they in elevated amounts that could be driving dysbiosis even further? So we can get clues into um, those, uh, those byproducts that we know can drive changes in the intestinal barrier. So we can get clues into intestinal permeability. Um, and so from all of that understanding, it gives us an overall you know, strength and understanding of the resiliency of one's microbiome. So one of the keystone species that gets a lot of uh, airtime is acromantia. Yes. So what is so special about this? <laughs> acromantia is getting a lot of a lot of press right now. It's, mm -hmm. it's it is certainly our favorite keystone species, um, and the reason acromantia is really hot in the news is there is a lot of research to show the health benefits of acromantia. It's a mucin loving microbe. So what it means is it starts to eat away at that mucus layer to essentially rebuild it. Um, and so it's really key in intestinal health. And especially when we talked about, you know, leaky gut or intestinal permeability, it's one of those microbes that we know can help rebuild that mucosal barrier. Um, and, and this is where stool testing is helpful. And, and because we can see if this, you know, level is down, um, we, can, we can obviously change, you know, how we eat. We know there's certain foods that, that acromantia likes. Acromantia has been studied a lot in metabolic health, looking at you know, diabetes and, and insulin resistance. Um, so overall metabolic changes. But this is where, when we talk about you know, different types of probiotics or how to replenish these very important species, it's important to understand the role of these individual species within the entire microbial landscape. Um, and this is why you know, when it comes to how to take probiotics or which probiotics to take, it's a larger conversation. So some people will say, okay, Acromantia is down, we don't have it, take acromantia. But that's not necessarily going to replenish an entire ecosystem because you have, they all live amongst each other. Um, and so what we've learned with that is that taking specific microbes and isolating specific microbes doesn't change the overall ecosystem. That you can get some of the health benefits of them, but if we're really trying to recondition the microbiome, we really have to look at what's going to grow the overall diversity of all of our microbes. Yeah, that's really interesting because there's some companies that just have acromantia. And so mm -hmm. if someone is listening to a podcast solely on acromantia, they're going to go out and most right. likely buy acromantia and just start taking it without looking deeper into what does their microbiome need. Could that be dangerous for them? So potentially, I mean, again, I think we're starting to understand different microbial patterns. And so we can see acromantia actually being elevated in specific populations. Like they've done microbial patterns on uh, people who have autism spectrum disorder. And, and sometimes we see a lot of acromantia. So, so yes, there, there is this, what we're really learning about the microbiome and, and kind of about everything is this like Goldilocks effect where sometimes having a little bit is, is good, but sometimes having too much is mm -hmm. not so good. And this is where, this is why I say we're kind of just hitting the tip of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to microbial research. But I've even talked to, you know, um, you know, supplement companies that have these very specific strains. And this is where we have to look at probiotics and these really health, key health promoting strains as being one, having transient effects. So we can take certain strains and we can take them in higher doses to achieve a specific result to improve a specific symptom, 
versus other types of probiotics that really look at the microbial landscape and improving the root of the issue, which we know what drives so much of the changes in the microbiome is that loss of diversity. So it's not to say that they're good or bad, but I do think it's important to understand the baseline and the overall health of someone's microbiome before we start to implement some of these interventions and, and strategies and plans. One of the um, tests that I include in my coaching package are genetics. And I look at different genetic panels based on the individual person and their health concerns and, and goals. And I see a lot of histamine issues, right? Their genetics, um, you know, they might have a heterozygous or homozygous SNP on, you know, three different histamine genes and maybe in their micronutrient test, which is another test that I include their, um, you can see how their gut health through their vitamin D or vitamin K, uh, nutrients are down. So you can see that there's gut dysbiosis, but what is driving so many people, young, a younger population into having histamine issues, allergies, asthma? Oh, I've seen this in practice too. And I think histamines is one of the biggest hot topics in, in health right now, because it is, we're seeing so many more people with histamine issues. So I think this goes back to one, we can absolutely trace this back to antibiotic use. Um, especially I think the CDC had a, had a, a marker that, you know, before the age of two, you know, children are, you know, X amount of, and just a ridiculous amount of antibiotics. And so because we know antibiotics affect the microbiome, we know that our microbiome really kind of reaches maturity around that age of two to three years old. So, so much of that antibiotic exposure, whether it's you know, exogenous antibiotics or antibiotics that are coming from food, that we're seeing those changes in the microbiome. And, and essentially, if we're, if we're affecting and modulating the microbiome and it's impacting our immune system, our immune system is what drives those histamine responses. And so I think because so much stems from what's happening within the microbiome, that we're seeing so much more of this, this microbiota immune crosstalk. And it's, what's really interesting about what you're saying, um, regarding antibiotic use when it's a toddler, I asked this question on my health history form about antibiotic use and they'll say, Oh, you know, maybe when I was like two or three for ear infections, and they think it has no meaning to them as an adult with their microbiome health but it does. Right. Well, right. I mean, I think, I think that's what we're, we're really coming to learn now is that we see microbial. I mean, there's so many studies done looking at the microbiome of how even maternal influence shapes, you know, fetal microbiome development. And we see it actually correlating with fetal neurodevelopment. And so there's so much better understanding of how even our maternal, the maternal influence on microbiome development. And then yes, you know, those I think that from eight, from when we're born to three year old, three years old, this is a key time period to really shape the microbiome. Now, it doesn't mean that if we have to take antibiotics, oh my God, everything's wiped out and done. We have lots of great tools. We have lots of great strategies. We really understand how to fix the microbiome, but we have to understand the impact of that. And, and, and even now as an adult, we understand we have to take antibiotics, but there's things we can do and practices we can put in place after we take antibiotics. So it's not to scare people, we need these things, right? And this is really, for me, the definition of integrative and functional medicine is we're that bridge, right? We can't avoid the necessary things. We have modern medicine and modern medicine is amazing, but how can we bridge these two things? And, you know, it does bring into conversation and, and the CDC has looked at this of just the overuse of antibiotics, which is a whole nother topic, but, but 
I don't want people to be scared and to say, oh my God, I'm never going to take antibiotics, but just know that there's a lot of tools and a lot of practices that yeah. we can put in place to protect the microbiome. Yep. And we're going to talk about those, but I have yes, a question yes. before we uh, dig into that. Do you see patterns in the species uh, or lack of species in terms of people who have IBS or people who have anxiety and depression or people who have poor sleep? Are there patterns? Absolutely. And, and this is where microbiome research has really helped us in understanding how microbial patterns can, act, can actually impact um, or, or actually give us, you know, greater insight into some of the conditions that we see. Um, and that's why, you know, a lot of these stool tests, especially the stool tests that we use, like biome effects, you know, they're not meant to diagnose health conditions, but because research shows that microbial patterns correlate to specific symptoms, conditions, right, this gut organ access, it really helps us identify um, those patterns and use those patterns to support optimal health. So even things like, you know, like for example, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, right? Or, or like you mentioned, gut brain, we're gonna see changes in diversity. We're gonna see specific pathogens or even SIBO. That's such a common pattern that we see on these tests where, you know, maybe diversity isn't changed, but we see very specific pathogens like Bacillia mm -hmm. and E. coli and Klebsiella that we know are a little bit more patterned in SIBO. We're gonna see changes in, um, digestive sufficiency even. So um, more proteolytic or more of these uh, protein breakdown byproducts that can be more harmful. We're going to see signs of over-fermentation. So maybe someone has so much short-chain fatty acid production and so much um, proteolytic byproduct fermentation, proteolytic fermentation, well, that to me gives signs of over-fermentation. So these patterns do help us detect a little bit more of either a condition that maybe hasn't fully expressed itself or to give further clues into what someone may be actually dealing with. Can you look at somebody's stool test results without having a health history on them, without having met them and sort of gauge what's going on? Absolutely. You know, I always say having health history and symptoms corroborates the yeah. patterns that we see, um, but absolutely we can see a lot. And sometimes, you know, again, like, like everything else, you know, I'll have patients that have the worst symptoms in the world, but all the tests and all the imaging and even stool tests don't necessarily give signs to that. So we have to take a step back, but absolutely. I did a test the other day and I asked this, I asked, you know, the provider, I said, is, is this person on any ADHD medication? They just had signs of showing, you know, ADHD in terms of the types of, of families and species that were representative, or we can see, I, I had someone who was following a carnivore diet and I asked because they really had very low short chain fatty acid production and it wasn't abnormally low, but it was lower mm -hmm. when they actually, you know, for what I could sense, but they had really high proteolytic fermentation. So the breakdown of protein. Um, and I asked, you know, is this person heavily consuming protein? And they said, yes. So, it, so absolutely. We can see those patterns. It's really, I actually kind of find it more fun when I don't get a health history. <laughs> yeah, no, I can totally see that. That's cool. That's really cool. And more, being more of that detective. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Um, all right. So now once we have a stool test result back, what's the next step? What do we do? So that's a great question. And I, and I like this, and I think it depends on the stool test that we use, you know, for me and in, in my practice, I would use, I love BioMFX because I love yeah. that we can see the patterns, we can see the functions. Um, for me, it really can, all, and can really tell me whether or not someone's microbiome is strong enough or resilient enough to move into that next phase. So oftentimes after we get a test back, it can often give us clues into further testing as so we have signs of SIBO and 
the patient has symptoms, I might say, you know, hey, we need to run a SIBO test, breath test to confirm this, right? Because it's not a diagnostic test. Right. Um, but, you know, again, it, it, that's where understanding your patient is so important. If I have someone that's come in, we'll use, I'm using SIBO as an example, you know, since I've been using that. But let's say I have someone who's come in and they've gone through multiple rounds of treatment, antimicrobials or antibiotics, and they're still having symptoms and we're still seeing signs of SIBO. Well, maybe their microbiome is just not resilient enough or strong enough to withstand another more, you know, withstand more aggressive treatment. Well, now we're going to start to get in and recondition. So biome effects and, and when we get the results can really start to dictate dietary recommendations, you know, supplement recommendations to start to work towards modulating and changing the microbiome. So let's talk about probiotics because there are so many out there and, you know, you can go to Costco, Walmart, you can go to Whole Foods, you can go to your That's independent right. um, health food store. So it's really confusing um, and you can buy them from your practitioner, but yeah. are we looking for probiotics that have a lot of strains available or is less more? So this is, this is a common question and this kind of goes back to sort of earlier, you know, when probiotics really started to come on the market that we didn't really understand what probiotics are. We knew probiotics are essentially, you know, live microorganisms that have a very, you know, specific health benefit or confer health benefits on the host. And, and they have to be researched. There has to be some kind of research surrounding, you know, the benefits of those very specific strains. And back in the day, it was like throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? It was like, okay, we know these good bugs exist. We know the microbiome is important. We know that this is impacting overall health. So let's just take as many as we can and mm -hmm. hope that something sticks. Well, we've actually, that's actually been negated in research um, and that we know that more is not necessarily better, but this really brings us back to, to really understanding and knowing our microbes more intricately, understanding the mechanism of action of specific, of specific strains, you know, to understand, to study these strains at specific dosages or doses that really have those health benefits. So, so no, I mean, I think we, I heard that even this past weekend and I was at a conference and it's like, well, I always recommend someone take X amount, you know, of, of CFU colony forming units. And I said, but why, you know, it, it's more important to understand the strains and what the strains are doing. Why? It's because we live in the United States <laughs> and more is always better in the United States. That's why. I, that is our, that is our, our MO, right? Yeah. Yes. What <laughs> about getting, better. what about getting the probiotics um, from yogurt? You know, I have a lot of clients who said, well, I I'll just eat yogurt, you know, on, on coming from a health coach perspective, I'm always considerate of what type of yogurt it is. Is it organic? Is it dairy? Do you need to be dairy free? Right. Um, and also is is it filled with sugar, right? Absolutely. And, and I think too, when we look at probiotic foods, we know that fermented foods, right? Anything that mm -hmm. that's fermented, you know, has the potential to have probiotics, but you know, again, not everything, not all the bugs in fermented foods are necessarily healthy, you know, healthy bugs, right? They're not necessarily or considered probiotics. We also think we have to think about manufacturing and processing. Like, are these actually still alive? Um, you know, they might've been initially when the product was made, but they're refrigerated. Is that maintaining, you know, so all these questions come into play, which is why, again, research and survivability, survivability and viability are all important when we're choosing to take probiotics. So I always say, if we can eat fermented foods, that's great. There are lots of options in the grocery store, but if we're really looking to achieve a specific effect and result by adding probiotics in, then most likely we're going to seek, you know, 
probiotics in the form of supplements. So um, one interesting thing is Microbiome Labs, which is who is the makers of BiomeFX, which is the stool test we've been talking about, who you do work with. Um, and I also use all of Microbiome Labs products with my family and my clients. They have spore-based probiotics. So what is the difference between a spore-based probiotic and the probiotics that most people might be purchasing on the store shelves? So I love this question. And again, this is really why we thank all this microbiome research, because we're understanding more about how these probiotics, right? Probiotics being beneficial microorganisms, right? That, that help the human host. We're really starting to understand the mechanism behind them. So I like to kind of put probiotics into two categories. We have colonizers and we have tourists. That comes from one of the researchers that we talk about or that we talk with. And, and or in other terms, you might've heard the term a metabolic response modifier. So single strains having single effects or transient effects and, and where spores were discovered. And, and, and when Quran, you know, went out to this, he, he was really looking for the next thing and, and, and looking at, well, I want to disrupt and I, I really want to find that next big thing. And, and spores really disrupted the, the probiotic space because they through research and have been discovered that these are colonizers. So it means that they're actually coming in and they're modulating the microbiome and they're actually changing the microbial landscape. So spore-based bacillus probiotics, they're so unique. They have this biphasic life cycle. They have this rugged endospore coating that allows them, you know, this extra layer of protection. So it allows them, it really protects them from harsh environments, like, like getting through stomach acid and, and if there's changes in the GI tract. And, and so because of this rugged endospore coating, it allows these spores to sort of sense shifts in the microbial ecosystem and sense shifts in the terrain. And so when the environment becomes inhospitable, they basically go back into their dormant state um, and can essentially protect themselves, which is really unique about them. And so when the environment becomes more favorable, they can they can open up and, 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 and start to, you know, come back out of their spore form. So they have this sort of ability to, you know, adapt to the environment and, and really protect themselves. And so it's really fascinating that uh, this, this sort of biphasic life cycle that it, it makes them have very unique effects. And so what we've learned in research is that with spore-based probiotics, they're not having specific effects on a specific community but they're really changing the microbial landscape in growing that diversity. And so we have studies mm -hmm. showing increase in various microbial communities. We see increases in lactobacillus communities and bifidobacterium communities. We see increases in other keystone species because of their effect to modulate the microbiome as a whole. We've actually seen in uh, stool testing where I'll have patients that are taking probiotics like certain bifidobacterium or lactobacillus or even things like acromantia and all of a sudden it comes back on the stool test that there's no detected or very low levels, it's because those strains are not colonizing. They're having transient effects on metabolic health or, or GI health, but they're not actually changing the microbial ecosystem mm. whole. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone that should not be taking a spore-based probiotic? Um, so yes, and I think we have different iterations for different types of populations. Um, but I think first and foremost, you know, people should always, always consult their healthcare practitioner. 
um, always consult their provider when taking supplements or starting any supplements because we do want to personalize that and, and be guided uh, by those who are familiar and understand the mechanism and the potential interactions. Um, but, but I do think that really sensitive populations, we were just talking, you know, offline about people undergoing, you know, chemotherapy and radiation. I would not recommend probiotics, you know, anything that has immunomodulatory, um, anything that's really changing and affecting the immune system, we want to be cautious with. But for the most part, our spore-based probiotics are extremely safe. Um, we can dose them differently depending on different populations, but I think it's a great probiotic for people to use when we're starting to really get into reconditioning and really changing the microbiome to try to change those, those uh, effects of the changing microbiome, right? To really start to get at the root condition. And should people be taking probiotics long-term or should they be cycling them? I've, I've talked to doctors who have a lot of different perspectives on this. Take them for three months, take a holiday for a month and then start a different strain or a different combination yeah. of strains. I have heard that too. And I think it just kind of goes back to some of our previous sort of lack of understanding around mm -hmm. these microbes. So I, I'm not necessarily someone who believes in, in cycling of probiotics because it depends on what you're using. So if we're taking very specific strains, like for example, let's say bifidolongum 1714, that's one of our strains, it's a psychobiotic. It's not changing the bifidolongum community, it's having an effect on reducing neuroinflammation and improving HPA axis dysfunction. So essentially, because these are tourists, because they're not colonizing, once you stop it, you, you they stop working, ah, right? Your symptoms come is. back because they cut, they leave the system very quickly. Now, what's interesting with the spores is that they can actually stay in the body for a longer period of time. This is why they're actually colonizing the microbiome and actually growing microbial communities. But I think we can go down to maintenance doses of things like our, especially if, if someone feels better and we recondition and they start to, I think we can have maintenance doses that we're not necessarily taking them all the time. But if we're exposed to all these microbiome disruptors like food and travel and, and antibiotics and medications and stress, yeah. then we're going to, our microbiome is going to revert back. So I don't ever like to say that something has to be taken forever. And I think we can use things, um, you know, more episodically or, or, or less often, but still using them to try to maintain the beneficial effects that we achieved when doing them. So but, well, but that, yeah, that, ta that takes us back to the conversation of preventative healthcare. I know, exactly. <laughs> right? Yep. Uh, talk about psychobiotics because you just mentioned that. And I think psychobiotics are so cool. I met Karan a few months ago um, who gave a talk on the gut-brain access and uh, the longum. What's the the longum seven. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there's other, there are some other strains that have been sort of termed and, and the researchers, the microbiologists who discovered them, they really coined that term psychobiotic. And I love it too. So essentially yeah. psychobiotics are probiotics that have specific benefits on improving mental health and, and mental wellness. And there's a few different mechanisms of action that take place, but essentially the role of these psychobiotics is that they have the ability to uh, modulate neuroinflammation. They have the ability to reduce neuroinflammation. And what's so unique about bifidolongum 1714 is this really special coating that it has. It's what's known as an exopolysaccharide coating. And, you know, other strains will have this, but what the research researchers discovered is that this strain in particular has a very large amount of this carbohydrate, this, this sticky outer layer. We like to think of the exopolysaccharide as, if anyone's a Harry Potter fan, we think of it as Harry Potter's invisible cloak. And it allows these strains to really traverse the immune system 
and start to elicit their benefits. And one of the key benefits that psychobiotics and some other, you know, some of these other bifidolongum strains, another one is bifidolongum 35624, that they have the ability to um, increase certain anti-inflammatory cytokines, what's known as IL-10. And that helps to suppress inflammation and suppress the production of our pro-inflammatory cytokines. So they're having these very specific effects and very specific mechanisms that we see improving everything from HPA axis dysfunction to tryptophan dysregulation. And we know that chronic stress, chronic anxiety, um, you know, chronic functional GI disorders like IBS are a result of having tryptophan dysregulation and HPA axis dysfunction. So, but what the research has found is that if you stop taking them within a couple, within a couple of weeks, our symptoms come back. And it's because single strains have single effects and they're transient. So again, does someone have to take them forever? But if you're not necessarily, but you have to also work in lifestyle and, and right. your stress management and diet, you know, all these things have to work together. So if we are still working a high stress job and we're getting lack of sleep, this might be something we have to stay on long-term to make sure we achieve the benefits that they're actually achieving. Right. These are not magic pills. No. <laughs> right. You have to do the work, right. To reap the benefits. Yeah. And when you do the work and you set a healthy foundation for yourself with all the lifestyle interventions, all of these things work so much better. They do. They were, and you, and you see results faster. And I tell people all the time, you're either going to spend money on, on sick care, or you're going to spend money on healthcare. You choose which direction you want to spend your money because you're going to be spending it. I love it. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love about microbiome labs is that they offer all these different products that you can start layering on top of each other, including the psychobiotic, right? You could take the regular probiotic called Megaspore, and then you can layer on the, um, the psychobiotic you're talking about, you can layer on things like Hue 58 and restore flora and the prebiotics, um, the Zen biome dual, I love. And I really, because of you, you just suggested the serene skin for my daughter who is having, um, skin issues right now. And so talk about some of these products and, and how they can start layering on and, and the magic that they, how they work together. So I think, and, and this is where stool testing is helpful because we yeah. can really individualize yeah. our, our treatment and our protocol plans based on the individual and what's happening in the microbiome. So you mentioned one like HU58. Mm -hmm. I love HU58. This is a high potency bacillus subtilis. So one of a very specific spore-based probiotic that has such unique properties. It actually can produce 12 natural, you know, antibiotic antimicrobials on its own. So it's almost like a gentler antimicrobial without actually harming our good bacteria. Huh. And so for really sensitive patients, you know, we might start someone off on HU58 to restore flora if they have a lot of mm -hmm. pathogens detected, you know, just to help to not increase, you know, any of that die off. And because spores have the ability to produce some natural antimicrobials, we can experience die off. We can have symptoms as we're starting to modulate the microbiome. So I like to, I like to personalize these protocols based on, you know, patient symptoms, what we're seeing in a stool test, you know, how sensitive they are, but things like your other strains, like your bifidolongum 35624 and 1714, that's what's in the Zen Biome Dual. Mm -hmm. I think for other lactobacillus strains, or even things like we mentioned, acromantia, I think of these as adjuncts to spores, because we want to get to the root of the issue, which is loss of diversity, which is loss of that barrier integrity. And we know spores come in and actually help to change that microbial landscape, whereas we can use other strains in addition to achieve specific results or to achieve changes in, in, in symptoms and, and changes in metabolic you know, health and things like that. But I think of them as two separate things. So 
Um, I do like the idea of kind of layering products. I like the idea of sort of starting, you know, with, and that's really where our total gut restoration system is founded on. Right. It's the system that looks at those key characteristics of what constitutes a healthy microbiome, diversity, feeding those keystone species. So that's our mega pre. And then our mega mucosa is really coming in to help to rebuild that mucosal barrier and help to improve the integrity of the gut barrier. So in addition to that, we may have to use some other products. We right. may have to add in some <clears throat> other support. We may be using certain products to help with symptom management. Um, but that's why I love total gut restoration and why I use it a lot with my patients is we can start to recondition and fix the microbiome, but there are things that we can do in the meantime to help with symptoms and to help, you know, to help to work towards seeing some of those improvements in the symptoms that we're experiencing. So I, I think of them as almost two separate arms. Yeah, definitely. I always have the Q58 on hand for my kids because sometimes they have to take an antibiotic for whatever reason it is. Right. And I like to throw that in for um, a month um, just to help them alongside their probiotic that they're taking. Um, and yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned serene skin. I, forgot, I, I was going to filter yeah. that in. I love serene skin. Serene skin, yeah. I like to call it a combination product. So looking at spores, because we understand a lot more about the gut skin access. We understand more about, you know, changes in the microbiome, how that changes. And with the addition of vitamin K2 in there, um, we've seen really great results in improving things like cystic acne and rosacea. So I think that's another one where, you know, again, these combination products are nice, especially if you have patients who can't or, you know, can't afford, you know, each individual product where we're trying to get some of the spores, but maybe we don't want to fully use, you know, again, it gives options mm -hmm. to personalize your programs for the different types of patients that you're working with. Yeah. What about people who really suffer from eczema and psoriasis? Is the serene skin, would that be a good add on addition to the total gut restoration? I think so. I think so. I mean, again, total gut restoration, you're going to get megaspore with the spores. And so it depends on how you're going to kind of layer in those products. You know, eczema, psoriasis, these can be psoriasis, especially as root is an autoimmune disorder. So right. anytime we think of autoimmune, we know we have to think about the microbiome and the immune system. So I think these are people that we're going to definitely do um, a total gut restoration, yeah. but you may then, once they finish total gut restoration, you may have them on serene skin to get the combination of the spores and K2, which we know it helps to improve elastin and collagen formation and, and everything like that. So it might not be something you use initially. It might not, it may be you use it initially and then transition. And so again, it just helps you personalize your protocols for your patients. Very interesting. Kara, what an amazing conversation. I'm going to have to have you back so we can really niche down and talk about very more specific things. This was such a broad view of stool testing, which is so important because like I said, people are going online and taking things into their own hands and making these decisions, purchasing these kits and really not understanding how to then apply it to their lifestyle and um, supplementation like probiotics. So really important information here. Um, top three things that you can offer advice for everyone listening in terms of their gut health? Wow. What a, what a good question, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> so number one for me, and especially as a dietitian, we have to look at the diet. Um, it's such an easy thing that we can, you know, start to change and small changes have big effects. So I always say, you know, even if we think we have a great diet, how can we diversify the diet even more? How can we increase certain fibers? How can we add more color? And I think we, you know, again, we have, we know the diet's going to change, but that to me is, is always so important because we know we can, it, it's an actionable item that we can start right away with. 
Um, number two, I think, especially if we are exposed to a lot of these microbiome disruptors, I do think spore-based probiotics is such an easy uh, supplement. It's such an easy change that we know has the ability to actually beneficially affect the microbiome. Um, and it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to feel different right away. You're not necessarily going to see the difference right away, but we're actually adding something in that's supporting all the things that we know, like diet and, mm -hmm. and environment that can actually, you know, impact, uh, that can actually change the microbiome. And the third thing I honestly would say is do a stool test, see where your microbiome's at. I mean, so much of us, we go by how we feel, we go by our symptoms, but let's actually see what's happening because then we can personalize the plans for everyone. If we don't get a look at our microbiome, if we don't get a look at understanding, we can often catch things before they even manifest. We can exactly. often see some of these changes before they even start. So for me, if it's, if it's something that's available and seek out lots of practitioners are, are using tests, mm -hmm. it's such a great tool to really start to change and put forth plans to really help to dictate the direction our health is going in. Yeah. The, all great advice. I love it. Thank you so much, Kara. Can people find you anywhere or should I just direct them to microbiome labs? You can be directed to microbiome labs. I'm on LinkedIn. So always okay. more than welcome to reach out to me. I am not a super social media person. Unfortunately, I feel like I spend so much time reading research that I'm done looking at the computer. Well, and <laughs> you are a wealth of stool information and, and gut health information. And, and we need people like you to break it down because it is, it's, it's a universe that people don't understand. I do love talking about poop. I will not deny that. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely a question that comes up with everyone I speak to when I'm doing their yes. uh, health history form. How is your poop? And yep. some people are really interested in talking about, and while yep. others are sort of like, wait, what? <laughs> Oh, I, I have the same. I mean, I have my, my, my flu questions, my interview questions that I always take all my patients mm -hmm. through and they're like, you really want to know. And I'm like, it's really going to tell us a lot. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, it was such a pleasure having you on today. Thank you, so Thank you so much for all of your time and your wisdom and we'll have you back. Thank you. It was so fun. And and I, I would love to come back. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because some really important topics are skin health and uh, and brain health. And so we'll dive into those with you. I would love that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.